Section four, evolutionary succession and preservation of technicity, law of relaxation. The evolution of technical elements can have repercussions for the evolution of technical individuals. Composed of elements in an associated milieu, technical individuals depend to a certain extent on the characteristics of the elements they implement. Electric magnetic motors can thus be much smaller today than in Graham's days because magnets have been greatly reduced in size. In certain cases, elements are like the crystallization of a preceding technical operation that produced them. In this sense, magnets with oriented grains, which we refer to as magnetically tempered, are obtained through a procedure that consists in maintaining a vigorous magnetic field around the molten mass that, once cooled, will become the magnet. Starting with the magnetization of the molten mass at a temperature above the Curie point, its intense polarization is then maintained while the mass cools. When the mass is cooled, it constitutes a far more powerful magnet than if it had been magnetized after cooling. Everything happens as if the vigorous magnetic field produced an orientation of the molecules in the molten mass, an orientation that maintains itself after cooling, if the magnetic field is sustained during its cooling and transition into the solid state. Now the furnace, the melting pot, and the coils creating the magnetic field altogether constitute a system that is a technical ensemble. The heat of the furnace shouldn't have an impact on the coils. The induction field creating the heat and the molten mass shouldn't neutralize the continuous field aimed at bringing about the magnetization. Uh, this technical ensemble is itself constituted of a certain number of technical individuals that are organized in relation to each other, both in view of the results of their functioning and so as to prevent the conditioning of each particular functioning from being disturbed. In the evolution of technical objects, we thus witness a passage of causality proceeding from prior ensembles to subsequent elements. Such elements, once introduced into an individual whose characteristics they modify, in turn enable technical causality to rise from the level of the elements to that of the individual then from the level of the individual to the level of the ensemble. Here in a new cycle, technical causality once more descends to the level of the element via the process of fabrication, where it reincarnates itself in new individuals and then in new ensembles. There is thus a lineage of causality that is not rectilinear, but serrated, where one and the same reality exists first in the form of an element, then as the characteristic of an individual, and finally as the characteristic of an ensemble. Yeah, I mean, if I remember correctly, that harkens a lot. Uh, I'm not read this because it's not an English read, but um, psychic collective and I forget that I forget the last names. So it's all in French, but th that that book where it talks about crystallization, right, and going from the pre-individual level to the trans-individual level, it sort of reminded me of that, right? Yeah, that image of crystallization is something that's very um, important in in that book as well, um, and in his work in general. So yeah, he's uh, sort of drawing on that here. Yeah, because if I remember, so, I mean, then uh, I mean, ensemble is, is is so. What is he referring to that in terms of ensembles? It's not really trans individual in this case, then. Uh, no, so we, we looked at this a little bit last time, but he's going to develop it further, I think, um, in today's reading. Um, um, so the the he divides up uh, technical objects into three levels. So you have the elements, the individual, and the ensemble. Um, so the, the, the sort of fundamental one is the individual. Um, the other two are defined in terms of the individual. So the individual, the technical individual is... Um, uh, a technical object that has an associated milieu, um, so it's uh, it's individuated and it has a, a certain environment in which it functions. Um, and then an element is a, 
a technical object below the level of the individual, so a component of a, an ind a technical individual that is not itself an individual. And then an ensemble is uh, uh, something that contains an individual but is not itself an individual. So uh, those are the three levels of, uh, of technical objects. So an, an ensemble is, uh, is an organization that contains technical individuals but is not itself an individual. Okay, would someone like to read the next paragraph? Yeah, I don't mind. Go ahead. <clears throat> the historical solidarity that exists among technical realities is mediated by the fabrication of elements. For technical reality to have posterity is not enough for it to simply Im to improve its in itself. It must also reincarnate itself, reincarnate itself, and participate in this cyclical coming into being via a process of relaxation within the different elements of reality. The solidarity that exists among technical beings masks the <clears throat> other much more sol essential solidarity that requires the temporal dimension of evolution, not identical with biological individual evolution, however, which in turn is not characterized by the successive changes of levels and which occurs along more continuous lines. If transposed into biological terms, technical evolution would consist in the fact that a species would produce an organ that would be given to an individual, which would thereby become the first term of a specific lineage, which in turn would produce a new organ. In the domain of life, an organ is not detachable from the species. In the technical domain, an element is detachable from the whole that produced it, precisely because it is fabricated, and here we see the difference between the engineered and the produced. In addition to its spatial dimension, the technical world has a historical dimension. It is current solidarity, mustn't mask the solidarity of succession. This later solidarity is in fact that what determines the great epochs of technical life through a law of serrated evolution. So yeah, here he's, uh, so he's, he's um, proposing a, a law of evolution of technical objects or a, um, um, a theory of the evolution of technical objects um, through these different levels of reality that he's um, pointed out. So um, the the individual technical individual um, it leaves a a posterity or it found a lineage not through other individuals but through elements. Um, so uh, it's uh, the elements of a of a technical object that is transmitted to a, a future generation and then becomes a, a, an element of a different technical object. Um, so you have a, a, a process of evolution where um, an element is incorporated into a new technical object um, as its descendant, which inc is incorporated into an ensemble, which then creates a new element and so on. So you have a, a cycle between um, individual, um, or sorry, between an element and individual and an ensemble and then back to um, a new element. Yeah, I think it's, uh, so he con contrasts that with the fact that uh, human organs, um, in the domain of life, an organ is not detachable from the species. In the technical domain, an element is detachable from the whole that produced it, precisely because it is fabricated. And here we see the difference between the engendered and the produced. Yeah, I think that line sort of um, explains it pretty clearly with regards to this uh, short little paragraph. Yeah, so he's contrasting technical evolution and biological evolution. So we have biological evolution is um, the evolution of species happens through the, the generation of individuals, um, uh, whereas um, in technical evolution, it happens uh, through this cycling between, between um, 
individual elements and ensemble. Yeah, would someone else like to read the next paragraph? Yeah, I'm happy to go ahead. Uh, nowhere else does such a rhythm of relaxation find its equivalent. Neither the human nor the geographical world can produce such oscillations of relaxation with successive fits and spurts of new structures. This relaxation time is a technical time, properly speaking. It can become dominant with respect to all other aspects of historical time to the extent that it can even synchronize other rhythms of development and appear to determine the entire historical evolution when in fact it only synchronizes and brings about its phases. An example of this evolution following a rhythm of relaxation can be found in energy sources since the 18th century. A large part of energy deployed during the 18th century came from waterfalls, displacements of atmospheric air and from animals. These types of prime movers corresponded to artisanal exploitation, or rather, limited factories distributed along waterways. From these artisanal factories emerged the high-efficiency thermodynamic machines at the beginning of the 19th century, and the modern locomotive, which is the result of the adaptation of Stevenson's valve gear to the multi-turbular design by Marc Sigmund, lighter and smaller than a French boiler. This valve gear allows for the relation the variation and of the relation between admission time and expansion time, as well as the ability to reverse gears, the reversal of steam. Through the in intermediary of neutral position, this artisanal type of machine and mechanical invention, which grants it the traction energy, the capacity to apply with itself ample variations of the energy torque to highly varied profiles at the cost of loss efficiency only in the high power regime where the time of emission is almost equal to the totality of the expansion stroke, makes thermal energy easily adaptable to traction on rails. Stevenson's valve gear and turbular boiler, which are elements that emerged from the artisanal ensemble of the 18th century, enter into new individuals of the 19th century, especially through the form of the locomotive. High tonnage transportation, which had now become possible throughout all regions, and which was no longer constrained to the contour lines and engineering of navigable tracks, navigable tracks, sorry, <laughs> led to the industrial concertation of the 19th century, which not only incorporates the individuals whose functioning principle is based on thermodynamics, but it is essentially thermodynamic in structure. It is therefore around coal source of thermal energy and close to the site of greatest deployment of thermal energy, coal mines and ironworks that the great 19th century industrial ensembles at the peak of their reign are concentrated. We have gone from the thermodynamic element to the thermodynamic individual, and from the thermodynamic individual to the thermodynamic ensemble. So this is a, an example of this uh, process of evolution that he describes. So starting from these, uh, these elements um, in the steam engine, um, they're incorporated into individuals like a, a high tonnage train. And then uh, these uh, individuals are incorporated into um, uh, an ensemble formed of the, the coal mine and the uh, rail system and uh, the factory. Yeah, I had one question though. Um, I think, um, one second. Yeah, so he says uh, high tonnage transportation which had now become possible throughout all regions, and which was no longer constrained to the contour lines of engineering navigable tracks, led to the industrial concertation of the 19th century, which not only incorporates individuals whose functioning principle is based on thermodynamics, but it is thermodynamic in, structure, in its structures, 
is, is, is structures is therefore around coal or source of thermal energy and closely related to the sites of, of thermal energy. Blah, blah, blah. It goes on there. But I mean, this key line here, I think I'm struggling a bit with it, whose functioning principle is based on thermodynamics, but is essentially thermodynamic in a structure. So, so I mean, I'm a... What do you mean by individuals whose functional functioning principle is based on thermodynamics? Uh, so here he's talking about um, the uh, the steam engine, um, which is uh, thermodynamic or the functions on thermodynamic principles. So it involves um, the expansion and contraction uh, of different gases uh, based on heat. Um, so it's a, uh, yeah, the, the steam engine functions on thermodynamic principles. So the individual um, uh, locomotive or the uh, machine in a factory um, are, are thermodynamic individuals. Um, and then they're incorporated into this thermodynamic ensemble because the, the, uh, uh, the whole system is structured around the sources of coal. Um, so you have these railway networks and uh, concentrations of factories around coal, uh, coal mines and so on. I'll read the next part then. Well, maybe we can uh, see if someone else who uh, who hasn't read wants to uh, join in. Anyone? Uh, sure, I can go. The principal aspects of electrotechnics will, in turn, emerge as elements produced by the by the by these thermodynamic ensembles. Before acquiring their autonomy. The applications of electrical energy emerge as a highly flexible means uh, for the transmission of energy from one place to another by way of energy transport cables. Metals with high magnetic permeability are elements that are produced by way of the application of thermodynamics to metallurgy. Copper cables and high resistance porcelains for insulators emerge from steam powered wire mills and coal furnaces. The metallic frameworks of pylons as well as the cement for dams are both born out of great thermodynamic concentrations and enter as elements into the new technical individuals that the turbines and alternators are. A new wave and a new constitution of beings become emphasized and concretized. In the production of, in the production of electrical energy, Graham's machine gives way to the polyphase alternator. The direct current of early energy transport gives way to alternative currents with constant frequency adapted to being produced by thermal turbine and consequently also produced by hydraulic turbine. These electrotechnic individuals have integrated themselves into the ensembles of the production, distribution, and utilization of electric energy, whose structures differ vastly from that of thermodynamic concentrations. The, the role played by the railway in this thermodynamic concentration is now replaced by the role played by high voltage transmission lines in the ensemble of industrial electricity. All right, so we have the example in the last paragraph of the uh, this process of evolution happening in uh, the thermodynamic uh, system, um, where you have elements, individuals, and ensembles uh, structured in this thermodynamic way. Um, and here we have the same evolution happening in the electrical system. So you have uh, individual um, elements like the copper cables um, and uh, the porcelain and so on. Um, that are incorporated into individuals um, and then they're uh, incorporated uh, further on into these ensembles. Um, so you have a, a new 
uh, system of electrical transmission, which uh, differs from the, the system of uh, the railway lines and the thermodynamic system. Okay, we can go on to the next paragraph. Uh, anyone else like to read? Um, I can go forward. So, at the moment in which electrical techniques reaches its full development, it produces new schemes in the form of elements that initiate a new phase. First, there is particle acceleration, initially realized through electric fields and then through continuous electric fields and alternative ma magnetic fields, which leads to the construction of technical individuals. Having enabled the discovery of possibility of exploiting nuclear energy, subsequently and quite remarkably, there is a possibility, afforded by electrical metallurgy, of extracting metals like silicon, which allows the transformation of the radiant energy of light into electric current with an efficiency that already reaches a level relevant for limited applications, 6%, and which is not much lower than that of the first steam engines. A pure silicon photocell, produced by a large industrial electrotechnical ensembles, is the element that hasn't yet been incorporated into a technical individual. It is still only an object of curiosity situated at the extreme end of technical possibilities of the electrometallurgy industry, but it is possible that it may become the point of departure for a new phase of development, analogous to the one we have experienced with the development of the production of utilization of industrial energy, which itself is not yet complete. So yeah, he's uh, giving indications here of a, a new um, uh, cycle of this evolution, um, which he uh, he's pointing to early uh, photoelectric cells. Um, um, and so it's interesting that this has, of course, um, developed quite a bit since his time. So I'm not I don't know too much of the technical details to know um, whether his uh, the example he's pointing to is um, the source of further developments that we see happening today or not. Um, if anyone else has, knows more about that, that would be interesting to uh, to hear about. Yeah, I found the Wikipedia link for electrometallurgy. It sounded cool. I had no clue what it was. So electrometallurgy is like a method that they use uh, electrical energy to produce metals by electrolysis. And... Uh, and so it's, it's electrometallurgy is like usually last stage, stage as Wikipedia says, in metal production is therefore preceded by pyrometrological or hydrometallurgical options. The electrolysis can be done on molten metal oxide, which is used to produce, as for example, to produce aluminum from aluminum oxide via a process. Electrolysis can be used as a final refining stage in the pyrometrological and medical project metal production and it's used for the reduction of metal from, a, from an aqueous metal salt solution produced by hypermetallurgy. There's a lot, a lot of metals there. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding based on this, uh, this passage is just that they use um, electricity to separate different metals out of a, an ore. Um, like I said, what they, they do to produce aluminum from bauxite, uh, which is why a lot of it happens um, near hydroelectric dams where they have uh, access to a lot of electrical energy. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph. Uh, I'll read. Every phase of relaxation is capable of synchronizing minor aspects of those of almost equal importance. The development of thermodynamics thus went hand in hand with railway transportation, not simply with the transportation of coal, but of passengers. 
On the contrary, the development of electrotechnics went hand in hand with the development of automotive transport. The automobile, albeit thermodynamic in principle, uses electric energy as an essential auxiliary, in particular for ignition. Industrial decentralization, facilitated by long distance electrical energy transfer, needs the automobile as a corresponding means for the transportation of people to locations that are distant from each other and at different altitudes, corresponding to the road rather than the railway. The automobile and the high voltage line are parallel technical structures that are synchronized, but not identical. Electrical energy cannot currently be applied to automobile traction. So within this uh, cyclical process of evolution, you have um, uh, different aspects that can be coordinated with each other. So in the same way, so in the thermodynamic system or in a, a thermodynamic cycle, you had um, uh, passenger transport was, uh, um, was conducted on trains the same way as freight transport. Um, so they were part of the same network. Whereas in the electrical cycle, um, you have the automobile, which uh, runs on thermodynamic principles, but is uh, um, contains electrical components as, as an essential part of its functioning. Um, um, yeah, and then we'll see uh, in the next paragraph uh, discussion of the, the um, new cycle that he sees starting uh, as he's writing in the 50s. So would someone like to read the uh, the last paragraph of the section? Yeah, I don't mind going ahead. <coughs> Furthermore, there is no intrinsic relation between nuclear energy and energy derived from the photoelectric effect. These two forms are nevertheless parallel, and their developments are susceptible to mutual synchronization. Nuclear energy will thus probably remain for a long time to come inapplicable. Applicable to direct forms of restricted utilization, such as those consuming a few dozen watts. Photoelectric energy, on the contrary, is a highly decentralizable energy. It is essentially decentralized in its production, whereas nuclear energy is essentially centralized. Though the relation that existed between electrical energy and the energy derived from the combustion of gasoline exists once more between nuclear energy and photoelectric energy, perhaps with a more accentuated difference. So again, he's pointing to developments that he that are just starting uh, in the 50s. So uh, the, the development of, of nuclear energy and, and solar, um, solar energy uh, are just starting. Um, and it's interesting that this development didn't really take off the way that he um, maybe anticipated. Um, so well, nuclear energy has has spread, but it um, has not replaced uh, um, fossil fuels in the production of electricity um, because, well, for a number of reasons, um, the cost of construction and uh, you know some of the famous disasters like Chernobyl and so on have uh, um, made it much harder to produce nuclear power plants than uh, I think probably people anticipated at this uh, this time when he's writing. Um, and then solar energy um, is only just sort of starting to become uh, competitive with uh, fossil fuels. Um, so the, uh, the cycle, the electrical cycle um, that he uh, um, describes here uh, lasted longer than I think he um, thought, it, thought it would. All right, so that's the end of uh, section four of the chapter. So that the basic 
um, concept introduced here is this uh, cyclical evolution of technical objects. Um, so through the, the cycle of, um, of uh, elements to individual to ensemble and then a new element and so on. Um, so that's the, the general concept of um, section four. So we can go on to section five, which is a bit longer, um, about 10 pages. Um, so that should probably take us to the end of our session today. So I can start reading uh, section five. Technicity and evolution of techniques. Technicity as instrument of technical evolution. The different aspects of a, uh, the sorry of the technical being's individualization constitute the center of an evolution which proceeds via successive stages, but which is not dialectical in the, pro the proper sense of the term, because in regard to it, negativity does not play the role of an engine of progress. In the technical world, negativity is a lack of individuation, an incomplete junction of the natural world and the technical world. This negativity is not the engine of progress, it is rather the engine of transformation. It incites man to seek new, more satisfactory solutions than those he possesses. This desire for change, however, does not happen directly within the technical being. It happens within man as inventor and user. This change, moreover, must not be confused with progress. A change that is too abrupt is contrary to technical progress because it prevents the transmission in the form of technical elements of what an age has acquired to the one that follows. So I'm just going to read this part again. In this technical world, negativity is a lack of individuation, an incomplete junction of the natural world and the technical world. This negativity is not the engine of process, but is rather the engine of transformation. It incites men to seek new, more satisfactory solutions than those he possesses. So, I mean, so, so at least there, there's like a theory of evolution in this regard, but... Um, in terms of, uh, I would like uh, clarification, in this context, and he uses the word a lot, like at other times, like how is he using the word individuation? Right, so um, individuation, um, so this has to do with um, what we saw in the first chapter on concretization. So an individual, a technical individual, um, uh, is a, an entity that has, um, components that are integrated uh, in such a way that they all function together. Um, so all of the different, um, or sorry, the a, a technical object is uh, more individuated to the extent that the different functions of its components are all integrated into the overall functioning of the object. Um, so it's more concrete in that sense, uh, in the sense that all of its uh, internal relations are all part of the overall functioning of the object. Um, and then what is also characteristic of an individual, a te technical individual, is that it has an associated uh, environment. So he, he mentions here the, uh, the junction with the natural world. So um, insofar as uh, a technical object is individuated, it will be able to function um, without self-destructing in a certain environment. Um, so a, a less concrete technical object or a less individuated technical object um, is dependent on a very specific um, environment, like a, a laboratory or a, a test, um, a, a test track or something like that. Um, whereas a more individuated and a more concrete technical object will be able to survive in a broader range of environments um, without uh, destroying itself. Uh, I have a question about that or a comment. Earlier. Uh, in the book, he was making a distinction between abstraction and concretization of the concrete, 
so does that mean uh, when he was talking about abstraction uh, as something negative, as a form of incompleteness in the technical object, was he also talking about negativity then in a more logical sense? That makes me think. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think in general, um, the category of negativity is not one that he um, sort of thematizes very much. Like it's not um, a, a central concept of his work. Um, and so we see here in this paragraph that we just read, he's, uh, he's distinguishing this process of evolution that he's identifying from uh, a dialectical process, uh, precisely because it's not negativity that serves as the, the motor of, uh, of progress in the, uh, in the evolution that he's identified. Um, so when, when he talks about um, abstraction as a, a lack uh, or an incompleteness in a technical object, um, he, uh, you can identify that as a sort of negativity, but uh, it's not a, an internal negativity in the sense of a dialectical process. Um, it's, a, it's a negativity in the sense of a, a, a lack of adjustment between the object and its environment, um, which as he points out here, and then it requires um, a human intervention uh, from outside to um, to uh, understand this lack of adjustment and um, to imagine uh, using the process of imagination to invent a uh, um, a new technical structure that will uh, be more concrete and that will um, um, have a better adjustment with the environment. We should also maybe throw in the word uh, hypertelic is is also functioning here where. It's if, if, if something's overfitted to its environment in, in, in such a way where it's it's either too specialized or not specialized enough, then it's hypertelic and it needs to be further concretized. Right. We saw that uh, last week where he talks about how um, um, an over-specialized technical object is not uh, an instance of, uh, of progress. So more specialization is not necessarily progress uh, in the sense that um, a technical object that is hyper-specialized to one specific uh, environment that can only function only function in a certain environment um, is less uh, is less concrete than um, a technical object that has uh, the capacity to function within a broader range of environments are there any other uh, questions or or comments Okay, and then uh, someone would like to volunteer to read the next paragraph. Sure, I can go again. Uh, for progress to exist, each age must be able to pass on to the next age the fruit born of its technical effort. What is capable of being passed on from one age to another are neither technical ensembles nor even individuals, but the elements that these individuals, grouped as ensembles, were able to produce, thanks to their capacity of internal intercommutation Technical ensembles, in fact, have the possibility of going beyond themselves by producing elements that differ from their own. Technical beings are different from living beings in many respects, but they differ essentially in the following respects. A living being engenders beings that are similar to itself, or that can become so after a certain number of successive reorganizations occurring spontaneously if the required conditions obtain. A technical being, on the contrary, does not have this capacity. It cannot spontaneously produce other technical beings similar to itself, despite the efforts of cyberneticians or cyberneticists who have tended to force technical beings to copy the living by constructing beings that are similar to them. 
This possibility is currently a mere supposition and is without foundation. But the technical being has greater freedom than the living, afforded to it by its infinitely lesser degree of perfection. In these conditions, the technical being can produce elements that harbor the degrees of perfection at which the technical ensemble has arrived at, and which, in turn, can be reunited to enable the construction of new technical beings in the form of individuals. There is thus no engendering here, no procession or direct production, but only indirect production through the constitution of elements that contain a certain degree of technical perfection. So this is uh, basically a restatement of what we saw in the last section about um, the cyclical evolution uh, of technical objects. Um, so um, whereas living beings um, reproduce from individual to individual, technical beings reproduce from uh, uh, an ensemble, from, yeah, an ensemble produces a, an element which uh, is incorporated into a new individual, which is incorporated into a new ensemble, which produces new elements and so on. Um, so it, it doesn't have the same process of, uh, of reproduction of, uh, of similar entities from uh, old entities. Um, but what's new here, or what the new concept is going to develop uh, as we continue, is this idea of the perfection, uh, of a degree of perfection of technology. Um, so um, uh, this technical progress uh, incorporates um, existing uh, elements with a certain degree of perfection and um, incorporates them into new uh, technical individuals uh, and so on that will have um, a higher degree of technical perfection. So it seems there is uh, a little room for sci-fi speculation here that this passage uh, gives us, I guess, too. He's uh, talking about cybernetics and how it aspires to uh, reproduction by the machines of themselves, of their copies, right? Uh, maybe we can see a certain prefiguration of singularity uh, as it's being talked about these days in transhumanist circles. Yeah, I know that's something that um has been talked about in yeah in AI and uh, transhumanism um, about having uh, AI systems that would be able to um, develop new AI systems um, and have a, a sort of um, takeoff of progress beyond uh, anything that, that humans would be able to understand. Um, there's also a similar idea um, in uh, the world of 3D printing of of having a, a 3D printer that you could. Um, uh, sorry, a, a design for a 3D printer that could itself be printed on a 3D printer. So you could have, um, once you get the the process started off, you, you can um, just reproduce 3D printers um, just through this continuing process of, of 3D printing um, new printers. Um, but uh, to my knowledge, this is not uh, possible yet, uh, but might not be that far away. Oh, and uh, yeah, Leif Mason just posted in the chat um, uh, an article about uh, self-assembling robot cubes, which looks interesting. Um, I'm, not, I'm not very familiar with it, but uh, something we can check out after uh, after today's session. Sounds interesting. Uh, would someone like to read the next paragraph?
Oh, where where are we up to today? Oh, yeah, high sixty one. Um, we're on page seventy two right now. Uh, this affirmation. Exactly. Okay. This affirmation requires that we specify what the process of technical perfection is. Empirically and externally, one can say that technical perfection is a practical quality, or at the very least, the material and structural basis of certain practical qualities. In this way, a good tool is not simply one that is well put together and well crafted. In practical terms, and I can't say this word, ads, is that how you say that? Um, ads, I'm gonna say ads. In practical terms, an ads can be in poor condition, blunt and yet not be a bad tool. An ads is a good tool if on the one hand, it has a curve suited for a straight well-aimed strike at the wood. And on the other hand, if it can be sharpened and keep its sharpness even when employed to work on hard wood. This latter quality in turn results from the technical ensemble employed to produce the tool. It is because it is a fabricated element that the ads can be made of a metal whose composition varies at different points. This tool is not only a hunk of metal shaped into a certain form, it has been forged, which is to say that the molecular chains of the metal have a certain orientation that varies in certain places, like a piece of wood whose fibers are oriented in the direction that offers the greatest solid solidity and elasticity, especially in the intermediary parts between the cutting edge and the flat thick part, which goes from the socket to the cutting edge. This region close to the cutting edge deforms itself elas elastically, uh, annoying word, during work because it acts as both wedge and lever on the piece of wood being chipped off. And finally, the cutting edge has a higher steel content than the other parts. Its steel needs to be hard, but in a proper delimited way, for too much of hard steel in the cutting edge would make the tool brittle and the edge would shatter into splinters. It is as if in its totality, the tool is made of a plurality of functionally different zones welded together. The tool is made not only of form and matter, it is made of elaborate technical elements according to a certain schema of functioning and assembled into a stable structure through the operation of fabrication. The tool unites within itself the results of the functioning of a technical ensemble. In order to make a good ads, a technical ensemble of foundry forge and quench hardening is required. I was giving an example here of uh, what technical perfection consists in. Um, so in the case of the ads, uh, there are um, certain qualities that different portions of the tool have to have in order for it to function properly. Um, it has a certain function of, of um, shaping wood. Um, and in order to have this function, the different parts of the tool have to have different technical properties. Um, so this, this is an example of technical perfection. I think the, uh, the next paragraph uh, is gonna help with this as well. So I'll read the next one. Um, the technicity of the object is thus more than a quality of its use. It is that which within it adds itself to a first determination given by the relation between form and matter. It acts as an intermediary between form and matter. Here, for instance, at the progressive heterogeneity of the quench hardening in different points. Technicity is the degree of the object's concretization. During the period of wood foundries, it was this concretization that gave Toledo's blades their value and prestige, and more recently led, led to the quality of Saint-Étienne's steel. 
This type of steel expresses the results of the functioning of a technical ensemble, comprising in equal measure the qualities of a coal used, as well as the temperature and chemical composition of the soft water of the Furan River, or the species of green wood used to stir and refine the molten metal prior to casting. In certain cases, technicity becomes predominant with respect to the abstract aspects of the relation between matter and form. A coil spring is thus a very simple thing in form and matter, yet the fabrication of springs requires a high degree of perfection in the technical ensemble that produces them. The quality of individuals, such as an engine or an amplifier, often depends much more on the technicity of simple elements, valve springs, for instance, or a modulation transformer, than on the ingenuity of their assembly. Technical assemblies, however, that are capable of producing certain simple elements, such as a spring or a transformer, are sometimes extremely vast and complex, and are almost coextensive with all the ramifications of several global industries. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the quality of a simple needle expresses the degree of perfection of a nation's industry. This explains why there are judgments that are legitimate enough in both practical and technical terms, such as when a needle is specifically called an English needle. Such judgments have a practical sense because technical ensembles express themselves in the simplest elements they produce. This mode of thought, of course, exists for other reasons besides those that, that le legitimate it, and particularly because it is easier to qualify a technical object by its origin than to judge its intrinsic value. What we have here is an, a phenomenon of opinion, but even if this phenomenon gives rise to numerous exaggerations or intentional exploitation, it is not without foundation. So he's uh, going on uh, further, further developing this concept of uh, the perfection, technical perfection of uh, a technical object, and so he um, he's explaining that the uh, the technical perfection of uh, an element can uh, can be the results of a very complicated. So it can be a simple element, but it can be the result of a very complicated uh, technical ensemble. Uh, so the spring, for example, is. Uh, um, is composed of whatever metal, stainless steel, or whatever it is. Um, it's a fairly simple uh, matter, and it's made into a fairly simple form. But the process of production involves a very complicated um, technical ensemble. Um, oh, uh, see you, Varun. Um, and then we have uh, uh, again in the other direction the the technical perfection of a, of an individual or an ensemble can also be the results of the perfection of the technical elements um, so like a, a radio um, the the quality of a radio um, can depend on the quality of the the, the valves or the or whatever other elements are um, are inside it rather than uh, the sort of general structure of the object Okay, so who wants to read the next paragraph? Um, I can do the next one. So, technicity can be considered a positive aspect of the element, analogous to the self-regulation exerted by associated milieu in the technical individual. Concretization is a technicity at the level of the element. It is the reason why element is really an element produced by an ensemble, rather than being an ensemble itself or an individual. This characteristic makes it detachable from an ensemble and frees it so a new individual might be constituted. There is, of course, no pre preemptory reason why one would attribute technicity only to the element. The associated milieu is a depository for off-technicity at the level of the individual, just as exertion is a depository of intercommutativity at the level of the ensemble. It is nevertheless good to reserve the term technicity for this quality of, uh, of the element. 
which expresses and preserves what has been acquired via a technical ensemble, so as to be transported into a new period. What the element transport is a concretized in technical reality, whereas the individual and the ensemble contain this technical reality without being able to transport and transmit it. Elements have a transductive property that makes them the true bearers of technicity, just as seeds transport the properties of a species and go on to make new individuals. It is thus within element that technicity exists in the purest way, in the free state as it were. Whereas in the individual or the ensemble, technicity only exists in the state of combination. Actually, can I just read on since it seems to be in the same train of thought? Sure. Uh, however, this technicity born by the elements contains no negativity, and no negative conditioning intervenes in the moment of production of elements by the ensembles or of individuals by invention, which reunites the elements in order to form individuals. Invention, which is a creation of the individual, presupposes in the inventor the intuitive knowledge of the element's technicity. Invention occurs at this intermediate level between the concrete and the abstract, which is a level of schemas and presupposes the pre-existence and coherence of representations that covers the object's technicity with symbols belonging to an imaginative systematic and an imaginative dynamic. The imagination is not simply the faculty of inventing or eliciting representations outside sensation. It is also the capacity of the prediction of qualities that are not practical in certain objects, that are neither directly sensorial or entirely geometric, that relate neither to pure matter nor to pure form but are at this intermediate level of schemas. Yeah, so this is, a, I think, an important passage in this, uh, in this section. Um, so it's, it's looking at, um, so we see here first the, uh, um, the argument that, or sorry, first he, he's um, di differentiating between two different usages of the term technicity, so a, a broader use and a more restricted use. Um, so in the broader sense, you can say that an, an individual, technical individual or an ensemble has technicity um, uh, in a certain respect, but he wants to reserve, he wants to focus on this um, more restricted use where technicity is reserved uh, for a property of um, the element. So the element um, has technicity insofar as it can be detached from an individual or an object um, and then be incorporated, uh, sorry, detached from an individual or an ensemble and then incorporated into a new individual and ensemble. Um, so something like uh, um, um, a vacuum tube, for example, um, which might be part of a radio, um, but you can use it in a computer instead um, if we're talking about um, <clears throat> 1950s technology. Um, so that's the sort of the first point um, in that first paragraph. And then the second paragraph, he's um, looking at this, uh, the manner in which uh, a technical element um, is the bearer of technicity. Um, so again, he points out that this is not um, a, a form of negativity in, in the sense of a, a dialectical evolution. Um, it's um, it's uh, through the process of invention. So it requires a human being outside of the element uh, to um, to use uh, imaginative powers. So to, to operate at the level of the schema. Um, so to represent uh, the elements, not merely as geometrical objects, but as uh, objects that have a, a certain dynamics that um, 
that um, uh, operate over time. Um, so using that imaginative capacity to um, invent a new technical individual that incorporates the functioning of those elements. Um, so that, that's uh, an important aspect of his, uh, his theory of technical evolution. Yeah, who wants to read the next paragraph? I can go on. Uh, we can consider the technical imagination as being defined by a particular sensitivity to the technicity of elements. It is this sensitivity to technicity that enables the discovery of possible assemblages. The inventor does not proceed ex nihilo, starting from matter that he gives form to, but from elements that are all, that are already technical, with respect to which an individual being is discovered as that which is susceptible to incorporating them. The, the compatibility of elements in a technical individual presupposes the associated milieu. The technical individual must therefore be imagined, which is to say presupposed as already being constructed in the form of an ensemble of ordered technical schemas. The individual is a stable system of the technicities of elements organized as an ensemble. What is organized are these technicities, as well as the elements as basis of these technicities, not the elements themselves taken in their materiality. An engine is an assemblage of springs, axes, axes, and volumetric systems, each defined by their characteristics and their technicity, not by their materiality, Thus, a relative indeterminacy can subsist in the localization of this or that element in relation to all the others. The location of certain elements is chosen more by virtue of extrinsic considerations than by intrinsic considerations of the technical object in relation to the diverse processes of its functioning. The intrinsic determinations based on the technicity of each element are those which constitute the associated milieu. This associated milieu, in turn, is, is the concretization of the technicities contributed by all the elements in their mutual reactions. Technicities can be thought of as stable behaviors expressing the characteristics of elements rather than as simple qualities. They are powers in the fullest sense of the term, which is to say capacities for producing or, under, or undergoing an effect in a determinate manner. So again, this is what he uh, was referring to in the last paragraph, where he he um, he described how the imagination has to conceive uh, the technical elements in their in a dynamic way. So um, it's not the element as a, a certain material object that is incorporated into an individual. It's an element insofar as it has various uh, capacities to to produce an effect or to undergo a certain effect. Um, Though it's that is that technicity uh, is that uh, set of capacities of that element, and it's those technicities that are organized into an individual, not the element as a material object. Um, the line, the forced last line that says technicities can be thought of as stable behaviors is really illuminating. Um, but yeah, just a comment on that. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, an important, um, uh, it's almost, a, well, yeah, it's basically a definition of what he means by technicity. So the stable behavior of, uh, of 
uh, technical element um, is that technicity. Um, and it's that technicity that is incorporated into uh, the structure of a technical individual. Yeah, this is this is interesting. Um, I I know I, I probably I missed some of the the early part of the the chat today, but has has he discussed uh, dispositions or powers before this? Uh, no, this is the first introduction of that uh, concept. Mm, okay, okay. Um, it seems it seems like he he's he's taking a, a kind of pan pan dispositionalism in the sense that he's he's taking like all all technicities to be properties that are. Um, that have dispositional essence, so to speak, or that he's reducing um, technicity entirely to to dispositions, or um, or I mean, I'm comfortable with the powers language for dispositions as well, um, coming from the my my readings on on power ontology and things of that nature. It seems that the, the considering um what what something's power is to be what it is its disposition is it there are some people that dis disagree with this in certain ways but i i think that it 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 covers enough cases to be largely what um what we mean by by powers is is dispositions in this regard um of course i guess there's some sense of power which might not be captured by that but but this is probably a different debate. Yeah, I know there's a there's a field of literature that I'm a little bit familiar with in uh, in analytic philosophy of uh, the ontology of, of powers or dispositions, um, and uh, I think those terms are generally used interchangeably. Um, and so in this text here, um, yeah, so he uses the word power in, in French is puissance, um, um, but uh, disposition, I think, works as a, a synonym as well. So yeah, he, he's conceiving of um, the technical properties of uh, elements as uh, dispositions. Uh, so it's a capacity to produce an effect or to undergo an effect in a certain way. Um, so uh, it's not um, the technical properties of a, an element are not um, um, static properties uh, in the sense of you know, their geometrical configuration or something like that. Um, they are dynamical properties, um, so they're based on a capacity to do something. But it's interesting that they're they're considered to be intrinsic determinations. So they're um, well. If I'm reading this correctly, let me let me make sure. I... Uh, if I may put in. Uh... Intrinsic also involves relation here, right? Um, yeah, so he's distinguishing between, um, so in, in the structure of a, a technical individual, um, he's distinguishing between intrinsic determination and extrinsic determination. So um, the structure of an engine, for example, um, certain internal relations of components are, are intrinsic. So they, they have to do with the functioning of the, of the um, engine uh, as a whole, um, sort of independently of its environment. Uh, and then certain other aspects of its structure might be extrinsic. 
So it might be um, certain parts might be placed in a in one uh, portion of the engine as opposed to another because of the the shape of the car that the engine is being put into, rather than um, because of the functioning of the engine itself. So those would be extrinsic determinations. So yeah, the, that distinction between intrinsic and and extrinsic um, operates at the level of the individual. Does it function also at the level of the ensemble in the sense that individuals need to be set into technical individuals need to be set into different zones, like he was saying earlier, or does that suggest that they are extrinsic to one another? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it's not clear from this paragraph whether um, whether there's such a thing as intrinsic and extrinsic determinations in an ensemble. Um, um, but yeah, I think maybe we can make an extension of the the use of the concepts here in this paragraph. I would think that um, um, so an ensemble operates in a certain uh, environment, for example. So you you could have extrinsic determination of the ensemble by the environment, or you could have intrinsic um, determination based on the interaction of the individuals within it. Um, so I think that would make sense. But the ensemble is just the, the organization of the technicities, which are um, related to intrinsic determinations, which are constituted by concretization of the, the the technicities contributed by the by the constituent elements. <laughs> Sorry, that was probably not the most well gr gr grammaticized way to talk about that. Though uh, I'm trying, I'm trying to piece it all together. Yeah, I I, 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 I totally that description fits for me, ex with the exception of the fact that that like he talks in places where individuals need explicitly to be isolated from each other in order to function as an ensemble. So he gives an example of a recording studio somewhere where in order for the electricity to not interfere with the recording, you actually need to be careful about how you isolate certain technical individuals that are participating in the recording studio such that they can fit together as an ensemble. Oh, right. Yeah. I recall that from like, like the sandbox, um, the safety zone where you kind of can see can see the the um, intrinsic determinations of of the element the, the the technicities contributed by by the elements without without um um I guess without the uh, or do you avoid the uh, assemblage within within that kind of org organization or is it just the assemblage is um is not preset or something like that. Or is it that the, that there is some kind of assemblage which always has to be preset and imagined, uh, as this paragraph kind of indicates? Or, or wait, or is it the technical individual must be imagined? But is this the um, the ensemble, or the ensemble is the the group of individuals? Or because okay, so there's there's elements, there's ensembles, and then there's individuals. And maybe I'm just not entirely sure how they all relate to one another. Right. We uh, we discussed this a little bit before you joined, um, but uh, the the um, so it's a, a three level account. Um, so the elements are the the lowest level; they're below the level of the individual, uh, and then the individual uh, is composed of elements that are um, 
integrated in this concrete concrete way that we saw in the first chapter. So um, uh, an individual is uh, is composed of elements in so in such a way that they um, their functioning is integrated into the functioning of the individual. Um, so um, all all of the uh, relations between the components contribute to the functioning of the individual. And then uh, an ensemble is uh, an organization of individuals. So it's not itself individualized. Um, uh, it contains individuals, but it's not itself individualized. Um, so yeah, the okay. recording is an example of that because uh, each of the components is uh, is isolated from each other. It only has one uh, relation to the other components, whether it's like a you know a mic cable or whatever it is um, connecting one to the other. Uh, but except for that one relation, they are supposed to be isolated from each other. Right. This 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 makes a lot of sense to me within the context of um, the the um, the kind of nineteenth century syllogistic um, thinking of the universal and the particular, and the individual as mediating the universal and the particular. So that that's easy to remember. That's good. Okay. So um, I think we can go on to the the next paragraph. If someone would like to volunteer to read. I could try. Sure, go ahead. Uh, the higher the technicity of an element, the more the margin of indeterminacy of this power diminishes. This is what we want to express when we say that the elementary technical object concretizes itself as its technicity increases. One could thus name this power a capacity if one intends to characterize it in relation to a determinate deployment. Generally, the higher the technicity of an element, the wider the conditions of deployment of this element are, as a, as a result of the high level of stability of this element. The technicity of a spring increases when it is capable of bearing higher temperatures without losing its elasticity. When it preserves its coefficient of elasticity without significant modification within larger thermal and mechanical limits. It technically remains a spring, but within a much larger framework, and is suited to a less restricted incorporation into this or that technical individual. An electrolytic condenser has a lower degree of technicity than a dry di dielectric condenser, such as paper or mica. Uh, an electrolytic condenser, in fact, has a capacitance that var varies as a function of the voltage um, to which it is submitted. The thermal limits of its utilization are more restricted. At the same time, it varies when submitted to constant voltage because the electrolytes as well as the electrodes become chemically altered during the course of their functioning. Dry dielectric condensers, on the contrary, are more stable. Nevertheless, the technical quality once again increases with the independence of its characteristics from the conditions of utilization. A mica condenser is better than a paper condenser, and a vacuum condenser is the best of all, since it is not even subject to the condition that the voltage be limited, lest the insulation risk perforation. An intermediary degree, uh, an intermediary degree, the ceramic silver plated condenser, for instance, which hardly varies the temperature, and the air condenser both provide a high degree of technicity. It must be noted that in this sense, there is not necessarily a correlation between the commercial price of a technical object and its elementary technical quality. 
Very often, considerations of price do not intervene in absolute terms, but via another requirement, like that of space. Uh, an electrolytic condenser is thus preferred to a dry dielectric condenser, where its high capacity would require too much space to house the condenser. Similarly, an air condenser is often cumbersome with respect to a vacuum condenser of the same capacitance, although it is much cheaper and is equally safe to deploy in a dry atmosphere. Therefore, in many cases, economic considerations do not intervene directly, but through the repercussions that the degree of concretization of the technical object has on its deployment in an individual and zone. It is the general formula of the individual that is subjected to economic repercussions, not that of the element as element. The liaison between the technical and the economic domains occurs at the level of the individual or the ensemble, but very rarely at the level of the element. In this sense, one could say that technical value is largely independent of economic value and that it can be appreciated according to independent criteria. Right, so this is an interesting um, argument in this passage here that um, the technical perfection of an element is uh, to a certain extent independent of economic considerations. So um, what makes an element more or less expensive is not necessarily its uh, degree of technical perfection, but uh, other considerations um, that have to do with how it fits into an individual or an ensemble. So. Uh, in the example he gives here, um, the space that it takes up um, is a uh, is part of what makes it um, more or less expensive, rather than its um, uh, its actual functioning as a, um, a condenser. Okay, so I can read the uh, the next paragraph. Actually, I'll probably do the next two because the next one is short. This transmission of technicity by its elements is what grounds the possibility of technical progress above and beyond the apparent discontinuity of forms, domains, the types of deployed energy, and sometimes even beyond the schemas of functioning. Each stage of development is the inheritor of previous ages, and its progress is all the more certain as each stage intends increasingly and more perfectly toward a state of sole beneficiary. The technical object is not directly a historical object. It is subject to the course of time only as a vehicle of technicity according to a transductive role that it plays with, with respect to a prior age. Neither the technical ensembles nor technical individuals remain. Only elements have the power to transmit technicity from one age to another in the form of an effectuated, accomplished, materialized result. For this reason, it is legitimate to analyze the technical object as consisting of technical individuals. But it is necessary to stress that at certain moments in its evolution, the technical element makes sense in itself and is thus a depository of, of technicity. In light of this, one can establish the foundations of the analysis of the, of the techniques of a human group through the analysis of elements produced by its individuals and its ensembles. Often these elements alone have the power to survive the downfall of a civilization and remain valid witness of a state of technical development. In this sense, the method of ethnologists is perfectly valid, but one could prolong its application by equally analyzing the elements produced by industrial techniques. Uh, there's a term here that uh, that came up um, a couple paragraphs earlier that I forgot to um, discuss with this term transductive. Uh, so this is a, a technical term that he uh, introduces um, in his other uh, major work, the uh, individuation in the light of form and, in and information. Um, so a, a transductive process is a process um, that, um, that occurs through um, 
the progressive um, transformation of um, of a, a metastable environment. So a metastable um, meaning um, it's in a, a state of relative stability, um, but its potential is not exhausted. So it's still capable of undergoing transformation. Um, so a transductive process occurs. Uh, so then his model is um, um, the, the formation of crystals in a, a saturated solution. So you have um, a chemical solution um, uh, and then you have a, a seed. So a, a small crystal starts to form and then the, the solution will crystallize at the surface of the, the seed. And so you'll have progress throughout the solution of a, a growing crystal. Um, so this is this is his model for transductive processes in general. Um, so he's in this text here. He's um, uh, characterizing technical evolution as a transductive process because uh, the elements serves as the seed, um, and then it uh, it restructures the envi the environment um, around it and uh, creates a technical individual and then a technical ensemble. All right, would someone like to read the next paragraph? Um, sure. Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're now in queue. So indeed, there is no foundational difference between the people who have no industry and those who have a well-developed industry. Even in a people without any industrial development, technical individuals and technical ensembles exist. Nevertheless, rather than being stabilized by institutions that fix and perpetuate them by installing them, these individuals and ensembles are temporary or even occasional. What is preserved from one technical operation to another are merely the elements, which is to say tools or certain fabricated objects. To build a boat is an operation that requires a truly technical ensemble, a fairly flat ground yet close to the water, sheltered yet luminous, with supports and wedges to keep the ship standing while it is being built. The shipyard, like the technical ensemble, can be temporary. temporary. It is no less than a shipyard constituting an ensemble. Even today, similar temporary techniques in some ensembles still exist, sometimes even highly developed and complex ones, such as the construction sites of buildings, Others are provisional while being durable, like mining facilities or the drilling rigs for oil exploration. A slight translation note here, where into the sentence, um, the shipyard, like the technical ensemble, um, it should be translated as the shipyard as a technical ensemble. Um, that makes more sense in the, in the context. Yeah, so we see here um, a further extension of the concept of a technical ensemble. Um, so he has, so far he's been discussing it uh, in the context of uh, you know, Western industrialized society, um, but uh, he's uh, he's giving examples here of how you can apply the same concept in uh, non-industrialized societies. So um, the production of a of a boat um, requires this ensemble that that consists of the the um, flat surface and uh, with access to water. Um, um, and you could add, you know, it has to be uh, um, uh, close enough to sources of wood or or, or whatever other materials are used for uh, for the production of the boat. Um, but yeah, so that you have a, a technical ensemble even in a non-industrial society. This is kind of interesting because it um, it kind of um, sets aside questions of of 
historically loaded kind of phases of technicity, these these kind of flattening um, technical technical objects and technicity out, so such that that the historical um, practices, which we don't think of as technological, are still technological, and in the same way that that the technological processes of um, contemporary society are. So he says that even within without any industrial development, the technical individual and the technical ensemble exists. So um, here it's just kind of taking some of the wind away from a lot of the arguments that would say that like we have we are now in this novel technical stage of history, but rather that this technical this technical um, this technicity is something which uh, transcends historical periods. So when I whenever I read his um, examples talking, um, I guess trying to talk about uh, how technicity might be employed in other cultures is like um, impressed and disappointed at the same time, sort of. That um, I'm I'm really amazed that uh, in his time he can have. I don't, I guess, such a wholesome view of how technicity um, transposes through time and different geolo- and geo, uh, can't, can't say anything today, geographical positions. But at the same time, the, the examples that he'd pick for analyses is just so industrial um, that I wish he had more analyses of uh, example that does not get limited. Um, within that realm. Yeah, I know. I know how you feel. I'm. I'm used to um, the the kinds of examples from from other authors on technology that will talk about um, uh, like traditional mythology and religion as having a technicity, for instance. And I find that these are really clarifying because they they're somewhat counterintuitive, and they and they support Simondon's claim that. The historical is is some in some ways kind of un, untouched by the technical. That the technical it transcends the the historical in a specific kind of way. That we shouldn't be thinking about technical objects as something that is just a recent development or something along those lines. Yeah, I think specifically what he what he's um, arguing here is that um, this this hierarchical structure uh, of uh, the elements, individual and ensemble, is transhistorical. So um, that same structure exists in contemporary industrialized societies and also in uh, non-industrialized societies. So it's uh, it's not um, specific to any one society. At this point, frankly, I'm really curious about Smanon's dating life. Uh, like, um, what does his partner do? I actually don't know. Um, that is an interesting question. Yeah, I'm just wondering what would it like to have this um, person, this this theorist, as like a dad or a partner, since he had like seven kids and and obviously in, enjoyed a lot of. Um, protesting and political activity and um, very sustainable farming activity and such with them. Um, but when I read uh, languages and thoughts like this, I just don't know how he can deliver it in a quotidian manner. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, his his uh, sort of personal biography is not very well um, studied. Like, I mean, he's not he's not uh, sort of as famous as some other twentieth uh, century philosophers, so there's not a, as much uh, biographical material about him. Um, like, as far as I know, there's no uh, book length biography uh, of him. Oh, thank you for that link. I'll, I haven't I haven't been able to find any biographical content, so I'll definitely read that after the group. Yeah, that's the article that I read that barely told me where he taught and his seven kids and activism and such. I haven't been able to find anything else aside from that at all. I think we can go on to the next paragraph if uh, someone would like to volunteer. That's the one starting not all technical ensembles? Yeah. Not all technical ensembles necessarily take on the stable form of the factory or the workshop. On the other hand, it seems that non-industrial civilizations differentiate themselves from ours mostly by the absence of technical individuals. This is true only if what is meant is that technical individuals do not exist materially in a stable and permanent way. The function of technical individualization, however, is assumed by human individuals. The process of learning through which man forms habits, gestures, and schemas of action that enable him to use the highly varied tools that the totality of an operation requires pushes this man to individualize himself technically. It is he who becomes the associated milieu of these diverse tools, when he masters all of his tools, when he recognizes the moment he must change tools in order to continue working or to use two or three tools at a time, he ensures an internal distribution and self-regulation of the task through his body. In some cases, the integration in the ensemble of technical individuals happens via the intermediary of an association of human individuals working in twos, in threes, or in larger groups. When these, group when these groupings do not introduce functional differentiation, then their only direct purpose is to increase the available energy or speed of the work. But when differentiation is called for, they clearly demonstrate the genesis of an ensemble on the basis of men employed as technical individuals rather than as human individuals. This was the case with bow drilling or bow drilling as described by the authors of classical antiquity. It is still the case with the felling of certain trees. It was also commonly the case not so long ago with the use of two-man crosscut cr saw, the two-man, a two-man crosscut saw to make planks or rafters two men working together in an alternating rhythm. This explains why, in some cases, human individuality can be used functionally as the basis of technical individuality. The existence of separate technical individualities is a rather recent development and even appears in some respects like an imitation of man by the machine, where the machine remains the more general form of a technical individual. Yet in reality, machines are very dissimilar to men, and even when they function in a way that produces comparable results, it is very rare that they use procedures identical to the work of an individual man. The analogy is, in fact, most often very external. Yet if man often feels frustration before the machine, it is because the machine functionally replaces him as an individual. The machine replaces man as tool-bearer. In the technical ensembles of industrial civilizations, jobs where several men must work in narrow synchronization are becoming rarer than in, past, than in a past characterized by the artisanal level. Conversely, at the, at the artisanal level, it is very frequent that certain works require the grouping of human individuals with complementary functions. To shoe a horse, one man is needed to hold the hoof, and another to hold the shoe up and nail it on. In order to build, the mason has his assistant, the hod carrier. 
In order to thresh with the flail, one needs a proper perception of the rhythmical structures that synchronize the alternate movements of the team's members. Yet one cannot affirm that what has been replaced by machines are only the helpers. It is the very basis of technical individualization that has changed. This basis was the human individual. It is now the machine. Tools are born by the machine, and one could even define the machine as that which bears and directs tools. Man directs and adjusts or regulates the machine, the tool bearer. He realizes groupings of machines, but does not himself bear tools. Indeed, the machine accomplishes the core work, the work of the blacksmith and not that of the helper. Man, disengaged from this function of the technical individual, which is the very essence of the artisanal function, can now become either organizer of the ensemble of technical individuals or helper of technical individuals. He greases, cleans, removes detritus and burrs. In other words, in some respects, he plays an auxiliary role. He provides the machine with elements, changing the belt, sharpening the drill, or the lathe cutting tool. There is thus, in this sense, a role above that of the technical individuality and one below it, servant and regulator. He supervises the machine, the technical individual, by looking after the relation of the machine with the elements and the ensemble. He is the organizer of relations between technical levels, rather than being himself, like the craftsman, one of the technical levels. A technician, therefore, adheres less to his professional specialization than does a craftsman. Right, thank, thank you. That was a, a bit of a long uh, paragraph. Um, so this is uh, some material that I think we saw in the technical mentality paper um, uh, that we read a few weeks ago. Um, um, and then also in the introduction to this book, uh, he talks about this a little bit as well. Um, so some of the, the reasons why um, uh, machines in, in particular um, uh, evoke a, a certain fear or um, uh, um, or even hatred in uh, in um, human individuals. Uh, so because the machine replaces the individual, the, the human um, at the level of the individual um, as the, the bearer of tools, um, it uh, displaces uh, human workers into these roles, either as the supervisor or as the helper, um, rather than uh, being the bearer of tools and uh, at the level of the technical individual. There's also a footnote that uh, probably worth reading as well. Um, so this was, uh, uh, where does that come in? Um, so it's uh, early in the paragraph, uh, maybe a third of the page down, on, or about halfway down the page on page 77. Um, uh, so it's when, when it discusses how the, uh, the individual is master of his tools, when he recognizes at the moment he must change tools in order to continue working, or to use two or three tools at a time, he ensures an internal distribution and self-regulation of the task through his body. Uh, and then there's the footnote there, uh, which reads, uh, this is where a certain nobility of artisanal work comes from. Man is the bearer of technicity and work is the only mode of expression of this technicity. The imperative to work translates this requirement of expression. To refuse to work when one possesses the technical knowledge that can only be expressed through work because it cannot be formulated in, in intellectual terms would be to hide one's light under a bushel. The requirement of expression, on the contrary, is no longer linked to work when technicity has become imminent to a knowledge that can be formulated abstractly and outside of all concrete actualization. So we saw this again in the uh, the technical mentality paper, the, the idea that artisanal work has this uh, sort of nobility associated with it in the sense that it, um, uh, it, um, the 
technical knowledge is incorporated into the the worker themselves um, they they are operating at the level of the individual um, and the knowledge uh, of the technical process is, uh, is can't be expressed in in abstract uh, terms in, uh, in sort of um, in linguistic formulations for example um, whereas uh, when we have um, uh, industrialized processes where the human doesn't uh, operate at the level of the individual, you instead have um, knowledge that is incorporated in linguistic terms or in uh, diagrams or something like that, where it's not incorporated into the person in the same way as, as the artisan. So the work doesn't have that same nobility. And, or, or science for that matter, right? And I, I think I mentioned it in the time of the technical mentality paper too, but that like this very much resonates with uh, Marx's fragment on machines from the, uh, from the Grundrisse. Right, and that the definition of uh, a machine as a bearer of tools, um, I'm pretty sure that Simonton is drawing that from Marx, um, uh, the, the discussion of, of machines in uh, Capital Chapter 15. We'll definitely look at the the statements in the Gundress. Uh, I don't know if I want to look at Capital, my eyes might fall out or something. Just kidding. I think the Grundrisse is actually harder than uh, Capital, but um, the one fragment on machines is pretty accessible. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, no, this uh, this that footnote was definitely very relevant. Um, there's there's it almost seems as though um, the the function which work work provides is in danger from the abstraction, which. Um, and from which um, the crafts, craftsmanship um, uh, limits the expression of 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 the work, the ex the expression as a, as a criteria of the work, such as such that work can can be worked without any kind of um, non abstract um, a non-abstract things. If it, if work can be entirely abstract in the sense of like some like if I were to imagine an intellectual a task of intellectual work in which somebody was supposed to just to do something with with abstractions, um, which did not have any uh, physical and or technical or experimental content, then there would be no longer this kind of expressivity within within the, the function of work and therefore work would would lose something which it heretofore had been constituted by, which is this expressivity of artisanal work. Yeah, this uh, changing function of work um, or uh, uh, this uh, transition of work from this artisanal mode to this industrial mode is uh, one of the key problems that, that motivates this book as a whole. Um, so he wants to um, uh, have a, he, he thinks that um, uh, our culture needs to have a, a, a more concrete uh, understanding of technology, uh, or sorry, needs to integrate understanding of technology at, um, at all three levels, at the level of the uh, element, individual, and ensemble, um, precisely because uh, human work no longer uh, is, uh, is realized at the level of the individual that incorporates the um, technicity into its own uh, functioning. Um, so in order to have the, uh, this relation to work, the, a non-alienated relation to work, um, we have to have um, 
uh, we have to be able to understand uh, the technology at uh, at those three levels rather than just being uh, subordinated to the machine um, as a as a helper or supervising the machine from the outside. Okay, so we can go on, I think, to the next paragraph uh, I can read. <clears throat> this nevertheless does not mean that, uh, that man cannot be a technical individual in any shape or form and work in conjunction with the machine. This machine-man relation is realized when man applies his action to the natural world through the machine. The machine is then a vehicle for action and information in a relation with three terms, man, machine, and world, the machine being that which is between man and world. In this case, man preserves some traits of technicity defined in particular by the necessity of apprenticeship. The machine thus essentially serves the purpose of a relay, an amplifier of movements, but it is still man who preserves within himself the center of this complex technical individual that is the reality constituted by man and machine. One could say in this case that man is the bearer of the machine, while the machine remains the tool bearer. This relation is thus partially comparable to that of the machine tool, if what is understood as machine tool is that which has no self-regulation. It is man who is at the center of the associated milieu in this relation. The machine tool is that which has no internal autonomous regulation and which requires man in order to make it work. Man intervenes here as a living being, uses his own sense of self-regulation in order to operate that of the machine, even without the need for it to be consciously formulated. In order to restart an overheating car engine, a man will allow it to rest, and in order, in order to start it back up, instead of beginning by revving it up too much, he will progressively get it started from a cooler state. Such behaviors, which are technically justified, have their correlation in vital regulations and are lived by the driver more than simply being thought by him. They apply all the better to the technical object as the latter approaches the status of a concrete being, encompassing homeostatic regulations within its functioning. For the technical object that has become concrete, there is indeed a regime in which the processes of self-destruction are reduced to a minimum, because of the greatest possible degree of perfection in, in homeostatic regulation. This is the case for the diesel engine, which requires a definite operating temperature and a regime of rotation confined within a narrow margin between minimum and maximum, while the gasoline engine is more flexible because it is less concrete. Similarly, an electronic tube cannot function with a cathode at any temperature whatsoever or with an indeterminate anodic voltage. For power tubes in particular, too low a cathode temperature causes the electric field to snatch electron emitting oxide particles Hence the need for a gradual startup, beginning with a warm-up of the cathodes without anodic, anodic voltage, followed by the powering of the anodes. If the circuits of polarization are automatic, fed by the cathodic current, then they must be progressively powered through the gradual feeding of the anodes. Emitting this precaution leads to a short instant in which cathodic current already occurs before polarization reaches its, norm, its normal level. Polarization produced by this current and proportional to it tend to limit it. The cathodic output, which is not yet limited by this negative reaction, would exceed the admissible maximum. So here we have another relation between the human uh, and the machine. So it's not, uh, the machine doesn't always necessarily re replace the, the human worker at the level of the individual. Um, so here we have um, a relationship where the human uh, operates the machine um, and uh, the human, uh, the machine acts as a, a relay between the human and the, wor the, uh, the world, the external environment, um, and uh, they the human being uses uh, their own functioning as a living being, um, as, a, as a model for uh, operating the machine, so allowing the engine to rest, for example.
I think the interesting thing for me is that this kind of um, behavior can be seen in society as appropriate, where other, you know, nuanced kind of active beliefs also are kind of just shed in the same van. Really interesting. Could you expand on that? Like, what, uh, which beliefs, uh, which active beliefs are, are you uh, thinking of? So what I meant by that was um, this type of understanding technicity as an extension of not only oneself, but also kind of society in a way where, you know, robotics can be this uh, mirror kind of society which acts in spirit alongside man, right, or whatever kind of concept uh you know kind of overlays most media contemporarily and you know kind of like way back uh, maybe like the advent of science fiction or when science fiction was really becoming popular with people like um um i forget his name sadly uh but he was the guy that really popularized a lot of like this type of like naval science fiction but um, the point that I was making was that this kind of behavior or like this extension of uh, man and spirit into technicity, right, is entirely appropriate uh, in certain circumstances. But then it's, um, you know, this kind of same concept. Yeah, yeah, him. The same concept is not really extended to um, other things, right, more inanimate things in a way where, you know, objects or bodies can just be perceived as things that fundamentally don't feel, right? And that might be a kind of callback to a sort of Cartesian notion of the separation between bodies and minds. But, um, you know, equally so, this kind of mechanistic thinking, which pervades all throughout, uh, you know, contemporary Western society, is, you know, we, we don't extend a lot of these kind of feeling functions to animals for some reason. And it's really incredibly interesting to see animals as these beings with the inability to speak or convey complex belief, imagination, emotion, or intention, right? And all the while, you know, Americans will refer to their cars as uh, her or, you know, she or uh, you know, any, any number of thing that objectifies, you know, further feminizes the vehicle and then also objectifies women in some way. And I think that that's really interesting because I think that this is really where, you know, a lot of like this kind of thought goes forward in capitalism is this progression of these pre-existing sentiments or, you know, antagonistic uh, toward, which are antagonistic towards women. You know, like these sentiments that just are so, unfounded i think that that's kind of what i was thinking of was these are considered appropriate but things that are you know inconsiderable in this you know kind of context is um you know you're not really allowed to actually believe these things to you know have any spirit or mind in them right and you're not even allowed to really extend that to animals in some cases except for maybe certain domestic species if I'm following you, following you, are you kind of thinking of um, of the of the humans' interaction with the technical object as as mirroring um, or mirrored by um, 
the human's reaction or relation to other humans. So kind of like a um, implicit yeah. social relation sort of. Yeah, is thusly a technology which mediates the relation between man's te man's technology and himself as well as uh, nature. It's kind of it's it goes full circle, yeah. And that is what I was getting at for the most part. That's what was implied in a lot of my stuff. But you know, something I kind of want to do bring attention to is that you know animals are being skinned alive in many parts of the world, and not much care is extended to them. And simultaneously, um, you know it. There is evidence that plants may feel pain, right? And there's evidence that meat may feel pain um, even after being severed from, you know, the body or the mind of the animal, right? And it's because of, you know, nervous stimulation. So, you know, people kind of don't really, you know, they're willing to suspend their belief as long as it is conducive to business or the state which they occupy, right? So... And that's kind of like a Baconian concept of like, you know, suspicions or suspension of certain beliefs. You know, it's like, oh, just don't pay any mind to this thing, right? We have to pay attention to this thing because it's the most conducive to our, you know, operation. It's the goal, right? And that's kind of my concern is like, you know, we might think about these things in certain ways and they might be entirely. It's like, you know, it's just fucking hilarious to me. It's like Americans will be like, oh, well, you know, let me view some media which engages the senses the same way that reality does and then let me just you know throw it away as though it's just some like novelty or like speckled spectacle right where it's just like oh yeah i just watched that yeah you know what did it do for me oh yeah made me believe these things and then it's like simultaneously they're like well that wasn't real you know it's like okay well it's kind of like a really super nuanced kind of you know, system there where any any number of aliens engaging in, or any alien individual right engaging in any kind of media like that they might or conversing with a person after they both shared some media experience and it's like what the fuck did they just experience right and why do we why is there like a set of actions which are considered appropriate uh, you know upon viewing this or you know just that's what was interesting me in that but also the mediation to keep on to keep it on track the mediation between the the technicity and man's relation to technicity and this kind of second race that comes up with this conception of robotics i i think that um <clears throat> as far as Simondon's perspective is here he he wants to talk about technical objects as having sharing a similar logic to the way we talk about life but without conflating them categorically at least that's my my understanding yeah. from what we've read so far. So, in a sense, he wants he wants us to be able to think of the technical object as lifelike, without fully thinking of the technical object as a form of life itself. So maybe this well, has... that was my question to the oh. topic at hand. Yeah, I felt that that might have been. Why is that um, well, I, I think, I, yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think that this does actually, um, there is like a, a kind of ethical imperative in, in this categorical separation um, into not confusing the technical object with the, ob the object that is alive. Um, even, even though I and think this that is it, constant yeah, in most comedies. 
No, no, you actually, actually, could you stop interrupting her in the middle of her sentence? Just let her finish a statement first, because otherwise the conversation is really hard. No, I'm not. I'm not trying to interrupt. I'm just adding on to what she said. She had yet to finish a sentence, and you cut her off twice. I was cheering her. Yeah, I'm sure it was it was meant in a positive spirit. Um, but but yeah. Um, what do y'all think about the um about Simondon's um how how close he he talks about life and human human life and and the technical object because it seems like there is there is this this kind of ethical imperative in the background that that um to to think about the to conflate the categories of life and the technical object would be somehow um, uh, somehow problematic in a very serious way and that by by talking about by talking about the technical object as something which can be lifelike it can can serve to differentiate them rather than conflate them um, but I don't know it, it, I can see I can see the opposite way that there I mean it definitely if if I had a very surface reading of Simone Din, I might be worried that there could be this um, this uh, possibility of objectification of of life forms by by thinking of them as te technical rather than lifelike in some way, um, but but I, I but I do think that he makes he makes great strides to kind of create a situation in which that ethical ethical um, differentiation can be can be manifest. Like he does he de he definitely I don't remember exactly where it was, but he made he made a stride to dissociate. The technical object from the the life world object. Yeah, I think one example. Uh, go ahead, Lale. You cut out. I think. Yeah, you cut out. Oh, sorry. The, the just to say that the um, the moment where he kind of uh, you know uh, talks about the limitations of the cyberneticists, I think, is a good example of precisely what you're saying. That he he basically says it's that that it's not it's not a simple it's not a simple matter of kind of. Uh, analogizing from life or evolution over into technical objects and that the cyberneticists made a serious mistake in doing so that they're kind of like they're you know that they're not observing the uh the kind of ethical boundary that you're describing yeah i think there's um there's sort of two levels that are operating um so just at the descriptive level um he he thinks that it's inadequate um that a purely um cybernetic approach to living beings is inadequate descriptively. Uh, so it doesn't um, um, doesn't cover what uh, a living being is in a, in a sufficient way. Um, but then at an ethical level, um, I think he would argue that our uh, relationship to living beings uh, is different from that to uh, technical objects, um, but that doesn't preclude um, the the ethical relationship or ethical responsibility towards uh, technical beings. Um, so he uh, we saw this in the, te the technical mentality paper as well, um, where he argues for um, um, an ethical relationship to uh, to technical objects um, like an ethics of non waste 